Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is Zachary Stacy, and I'm a pharmacotherapy specialist at Barnes Jewish West County Hospital in St. Louis, and I'll be the host today. With me today is my friend, Dr. Toby Trujillo. Dr. Trujillo is an associate professor at Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. He is a clinical specialist in cardiology and more specifically an expert in anticoagulation. Dr. Trujillo serves as co-chair on the anticoagulation subcommittee at UC Health University at Colorado Hospital. And Dr. Trujillo is a fellow in the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and the American Heart Association. This episode is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and this podcast series focused on peripheral arterial disease is for informational purposes and is not approved for continuing educational credit. Additional podcasts on this topic will be available. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Trujillo, and let's get started. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for for joining us today, and we're going to talk about peripheral arterial disease, and let's Let's try to frame how common this disorder is or this condition is. How many patients in the United States have this? Yeah, so good question. I think one that's probably a little underappreciated by a lot of our colleagues. So recent estimates that I was looking at or reading are around over 9 million people currently have peripheral arterial disease, which is the most common form of peripheral vascular disease here in the United States. And it is a disease that's definitely associated with age. And so it's very common as you start getting uh, over the age of 40 and up. And so the prevalence, I think, was around 3% in terms of the population in the United States that I was also looking at as well. But importantly, I think one thing to also keep in mind is that uh, there are probably many patients with PAD that are undiagnosed. And so that no- those numbers are probably a significant underestimate of the, of the actual number of people that actually have PAD here in the U.S. And why do you think that's undiagnosed? Well, it's undiagnosed mostly because diagnosis usually only takes place once patients are symptomatic. So once patients become symptomatic, so PAD, uh, I know we're going to, I don't want to jump the gun here, but a little bit, but obviously uh, it is a form of clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so there's probably a, a large number of people walking around with atherosclerosis in a variety of cardiovascular events, just not not just coronary or cerebral, but also obviously the peripheral arterials, peripheral arterial system in the legs. And atherosclerosis is often clinically silent for a long period of time. Uh, and then it'll become symptomatic either through situations where blood supply can't meet oxygen demand under, say, exertion, or there is an acute event, uh, usually due to a rupture of an atherosclerotic plaque. So again, there's, there's probably, so underdiagnosed or underestimates probably because there's a fair number of people with asymptomatic disease that have not yet been diagnosed. So it probably underscores the importance of identifying those who are at highest risk and, and screening those who are at highest risk. If the th- first thing that brings someone in is the sign of pain on exertion, then, you know, maybe we've missed the boat a bit and we've, we're making the diagnosis later in the condition rather than earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, it, I think in terms of the three main arterial beds where we worry about, we most commonly encounter atherosclerosis, coronary, cerebral, peripheral arterial. The, the peripheral arterial system is probably the least appreciated, least most, most clinicians probably have least familiarity in terms of the complications associated with that or the, the clinical implications of that. So, and so I guess another important point to make along those lines is presence of peripheral arterial disease is in terms of risk for cardiovascular disease for CV events uh, is, is the same. So if you so a patient who has coronary artery disease or peripheral arterial disease, they have the same risk for say a myocardial infarction. And so PAD is, needs to be recognized as a significant risk for cardiovascular events because that's how most people actually die who have PAD. But speaking to that, identifying those patients you know, earlier on to be able to you know, do appropriate strategies like risk factor modification is important. And it's probably a function of you know, when you think about arterial beds that lead to significant complications if there's disease, it's easy to make the association between the arterial bed and a stroke. And the arterial bed, you know, in a with hearts and you know an MI, but when you think about the arterial bed and legs, there's not that like sort of event that I think we're all in tune of looking for and concerned about, right. and and probably goes, I think, underappreciated for the value that that it serves in in a patient's health. No, for sure. So you know, you mentioned a couple of, I guess, salient points that more, people are more familiar with. So right. The event in atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries ultimately is a heart attack in MI, right? Or acute coronary syndrome. People are very familiar with that. People know, hey, chest pain, seek help soon, you know, contact emergency medical services. We know, you know, me, you know, we know how to rapidly treat those patients. Same thing with stroke, right? So TIA or stroke, people have been educated. The public, there's been a big push to generally educate them. But a TIA stroke, you know, people can tangibly identify what that looks like. The equivalent in the peripheral arterial system or the lower extremities is something called critical limb ischemia. And it is it's something that's probably not, I think, as well appreciated, certainly not by the public, but certainly by, I think, many of our lay practitioners because they probably just don't encounter it very often. Uh, but it's essentially the same kind of concept, right? You've got this, you've got this plaque in the lower extremities, you've had a rupture, you've got a clot on top of it, and now you've got immediate interruption of blood flow to one of the, you know, to you know, one of your lower extremities, and obviously that whole lower extremity is at risk for ischemia and infar- you know, infarction, essentially. Yeah. So, but that that tends to happen later on in the disease process, and oftentimes isn't necessarily the presenting sort of event. So, if we're if the end point is to prevent critical limb ischemia and the, the disease from progressing into a more symptomatic form. And we talked about maybe the uh, importance of screening patients earlier. What what types of patient characteristics should we look for yeah. uh, in order to find those that are most rich in risk factors? Right. So so there's actually some pretty specific recommendations from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, in terms of who should be screened for PAD. And I'm just looking at the guidelines right now. Just and so these are people that all uh, you would consider probably an increased risk for atherosclerosis. And so um, certainly age greater than 65, people age 50 to 64 with other risk factors for atherosclerosis, like smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes. So like the big the big ones that we're used to thinking about. 
are age less than 50 with diabetes and one additional risk factor, or just anybody with known, I guess, ASCVD, say in the coronary or the cerebral vascular events. So the, really the recommendation is to screen those patients to see if they have PAD as well. And so if they already have CAD or CVD, you're obviously already going to be probably dealing with risk factor modification and appropriate problem therapies, which I know will be the subject of later podcasts. But, but for, for those who don't have any clinical diagnosis of ASCVD anywhere yet, I think it's important to screen those people to identify if PAD is present, because then obviously uh, risk factor modification becomes, becomes supremely important to try and prevent the progression of atherosclerosis. So it sounds like, I, I mean, I, and I think, I think of those patients that have heart disease and that are at risk for, for heart attacks and those who are at risk for stroke, it sounds like a similar group of patients that if you are concerned about heart attacks and strokes in a patient, you should probably also be concerned about PAD. Yeah, absolutely. So um, because, again, atherosclerosis is the underlying pathophysiology of peripheral arterial disease, just like it is for coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease. Yeah, identify, you know, those classic risk factors are going to identify those patients who are at risk for, you know, for clinical manifestations of ASCVD and all those bits. And that includes PAD as well. So what are some of the options if we've screened a patient or if we've identified the need to screen a patient, what are some of our diagnostic methods that we can use to identify if someone does have the presence of atherosclerosis in, a, in an extremity? Yeah. So I think an important point to make, and I think it probably tracks back to earlier, what we were talking about earlier in our conversation is you can't just diagnose by symptoms or severity of pain. So patients who have peripheral arterial disease can either be asymptomatic or they can progress to having symptoms of ischemia in lower extremities. And usually most people will present with something called intermittent claudication, which is essentially the equivalent of chest pain or anginal pain. When people say go outside and shovel their walkway or go work out in the garden and that increase in activity causes an increased need for oxygen in the heart and then they, their blood supply can't meet it and they get chest pain. Well, the same thing happens in the lower extremities. So they go for a walk or they do anything that it, and they increase the oxygen demand of the muscles of the tissues of the legs and the blood supply just can't meet it. So they get, they get pain down on their lower extremities and that's intermittent claudication. And then that can, more severe disease, people can just have pain at rest. But then as we talked about before, they can have critical limb ischemia where the actual limb is, is compromised and, they, and really a surgical revascularization or reopening of the artery is going to be needed to save that patient's leg or lower extremity. But so back to your original question, Zach, you can't really just rely on symptoms, though, because many patients won't be symptomatic, but will still have disease. So there is a great, easy tool that can be used uh, that really anybody can do um, if, you can, if you can take a blood pressure. So that's called the ankle brachial index or the ABI. And that is the recommended approach to diagnose somebody with PAD. And for an ABI to be done, you know, when it's performed, you know, what's the general sort of technique or what's the general approach to, a, to performing an ABI? Right. So it's really comparing, uh, and I actually would ask, hey, you help me out with this a little bit as well, because I have not done too many ABIs in my career, uh, but it's essentially taking blood pressure and I say like the upper right extremity, the upper right arm and measuring systolic diastolic there. And then what you're going to do is you're going to take that cuff and you're going to measure the pressure down on the lower extremity, closer around the ankle. And you're going to take the uh, measure the pressure there as well. And what you're going to do, and I'm sort of making this relatively simplified, is you're going to compare what those two pressures look like, right? 
And so an ABI, and you're going to then uh, do the, the pressure from the upper extremity over the pressure from the lower extremity. Or do I have that backwards? No, that's right. Correct? Yeah. It, so it should be an- ankle to break it. Or, uh, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, there you so, go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So it's the low, it's the pressure from the ankle area to the brachial area. And ideally what you want is an index of 1 to 1.4. That's normal. That means blood's flowing and pressures are the same in, in the upper extremity and lower extremity. But as that ankle brachial index starts to drop less than one, in fact, less than 0.9, that is diagnostic for peripheral arterial disease. So once a patient's pressure in their arms in relation to their ankles, once that, that ratio is sort of, once it's below, once it's below one, then we would define someone as having PAD. And so is there a, is there an ABI that we associate with critical limb ischemia? Right. Yeah. So, well, I guess the other quick point to make is you, you still you still need to exclude other potential disease states that might mimic the pain that is experienced from PAD. So usually that's peripheral neuropathy or actually potentially a DVT. You might need to rule that out as well. So there are a couple other things you just sort of make need to make sure aren't actually causing the patient's discomfort for, as well. Um, and then you can do it uh, in terms of diagnosing somebody if they having pain, but if they don't, and you're doing an ABI, uh, usually mild obstruction is anywhere from 0.7 to 0.9, moderate is 0.4 to 0.7, severe is 0 to 0.4. And usually that critical limb ischemia is in that last sort of area, that severe obstruction area. But my guess is that if you have a patient who's been asymptomatic and you're doing an ankle brachial index, you're probably not going to find somebody with severe obstruction. Uh, You're probably going to find either mild or potentially moderate, but mostly mild disease that just hasn't become symptomatic yet. And I like the ABI because it's, you know, it's a technique that any pharmacist can perform. I mean, if, you, if you've taken a blood pressure, right. then you essentially know the technique. So any pharmacist in any setting could, could do an ABI. It's simple. It's non-invasive. You know, when we right. talk about medicine and the expense and you know, concern for safety, uh, patient safety, you know, it's a, a non-invasive test. And in terms of testing, it's got a relatively high specificity and sensitivity, meaning the, you know, the white noise that you could get with other diagnostic tests, it's pretty, pretty low with an ABI. I mean, if, if an ABI demonstrates some concern, then it's definitely, there's a need for some follow-up there with a specialist, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So to your point, it is. It's an easy test. One the pharmacists can perform. I mean, this could be performed in a community pharmacy, right? As long as they obviously have a appropriate space in order to do it. But it's again, it's really taking a, a blood pressure in the upper extremity and one down at the lower extremity at the ankle area. And it's you know, pharmacists can easily map, you know, have have the capability of doing that. And again, if you if somebody gets diagnosed or if you if you end up with an ABI where oh, this patient probably has PAD, then that patient should be referred back to either the primary care provider or somebody to immediately start addressing management uh, for that particular patient. Because ultimately, we need to go on to prevent cardiovascular events, which is what most patients are going to die from. And I like the how you paralleled the PAD with the, the CAD, meaning that the disease process and the, the symptomology and the progression of the disease sort of parallels one another. So we think of asymptomatic CHD, you know, someone who's at risk for a cardiac event. And that's kind of the population that we would like to screen for and identify with PAD, those with asymptomatic PAD. 
who have the atherosclerotic plaque, but it hasn't progressed to, in heart disease, we might call that stable angina, but here we would call it intermittent claudication in the legs. And then eventually into an event for a heart attack in the coronary arteries, you know, coronary arteries or um, more critical limb ischemia for the, for the leg. So I like, I like how you sort of parallel those together. And I think it helps make a lot of sense. You know, if you're more in tune with heart disease, I think it makes sense. And using that, that parallel idea to trying to identify the types of patients and when you want to identify them and what you're trying to prevent in terms of complications downstream. Yeah. So when we think about peripheral arterial disease, how would you de- describe the pathophysiology? The what what is that the underlying problem in someone who's experiencing atherosclerosis and perhaps even a thrombotic event in the peripheral arteries? Yeah. So again, underlying pathophys is the development of atherosclerotic plaques in the peripheral arterial tree, right? And so then, then just really think about, well, how does atherosclerosis develop? Well, we know that there are uh, several significant risk factors that are associated with it. So diabetes, smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, inactivity, all of those are have been long established, right? So it's, that's whether it's atherosclerosis in the peripheral arterial bed, coronary artery disease or cerebral vascular disease. And so knowing that, of course, we know that intervening on, on those risk factors, so making sure good blood pressure control, making sure that patients have their uh, cholesterol managed appropriately, stop smoking. Smoking is a big one for peripheral arterial disease. Uh, probably, you know, and, and so those things are, are, are important, right? And again, any healthcare practitioner can assist in helping a patient try to manage that, right? Those are behaviors. A lot of times those are behaviors and, and involve behavior change. And so and beha- and patients have a hard time changing behaviors in terms of what they eat and how much exercise they have and all, and all that kind of stuff. So a multi-pronged, multidisciplinary approach is oftentimes very helpful with that. And then, you know, along with the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis, along with those risk factors, which, you know, ultimately leads to endothelial dysfunction and accumulation of cholesterol in the arterial bed and inflammation, there is a component to the process um, of the coagulation cascade and platelets. And, you know, not to go into the weeds too much, but platelet activity, certainly, and actually, uh, act, you know, coagulation cascade activity, specifically thrombin, have been shown to um, sort of contribute to the progression of the disease. So that, again, also tees up, which I think you guys will probably talk a lot more in detail in the next podcast, um, some of the interventions that we might use to try and prevent critical thrombotic events from happening. So in, in PAD, it's, you know, when I think of thrombosis in vasculature, I, I normally think of the veins and clotting factors being a major contributor in the veins, you know, and that's why we use heparin and Lovenox and things like that for VTE. And then when I think of arterial beds, I think of that as being a more platelet rich process. And that's why for heart attacks and strokes, we use things like aspirin and, and Plavix. And so this is this is an arterial bed in the legs, but I think it's important that we we don't untie those two systems because it's I think we what we commonly see in school and, and probably we teach is one day we come in and talk about platelets and the next day, you know, the next day we come in and talk about the clotting cascade as if 
they never see each other in the blood. They're like two independent processes. And I think it's always important when we think about these disease states that there is a lot of intertwining and a lot of communication between those two processes. And so it's not just one or the other. It's probably much more complicated than what we even probably already know. Yeah. No, I would agree 100%. You're right, because whenever I'm teaching, you know, Whenever I'm teaching the P1 pharmacy students about hemostasis, you know, I'm separating out okay, platelets and what they do and coagulation cascade. Uh, but then there's certainly a concerted effort to say, well, none of this happens in isolation, right? These, in fact, these two things need each other, right? Uh, they, they interact with each other. So just in the context of forming a clot, let's say you have vascular injury, you want to stem blood loss, forming a clot. Those two platelets, the coagulation cascade, are interacting and intertwining in that process. And they're also going to interact with intertwine in any other disease process where, you know, coagulation or thrombosis might be a part of it, it maybe a component of the disease progression. So, and there's been more data recently really looking at, again, like thrombin as being a potential a mediator of stimulating atherosclerosis progression as well. So I think there's been a, for a long time, we thought, oh, arterials, platelets, right? Yeah. Like more, and, and more platelets more antiplatelet drugs. Yeah. Right? And I think lately there's been a little bit of a reappreciation of the role of the coagulation cascade in atherosclerosis, not only in progression, but also preventing critical events like large thrombotic events or, or clinically meaningful thrombotic events. So, uh, so I, I, some, some mixing and marrying of probably antiplatelet and anticoagulant drugs is probably going to continue to be sort of our approach. Again, maybe just teeing up what you guys are going to talk about in your next podcast. Yeah, and I think it's something that we we probably appreciated years ago for heart disease. You know, right. we've used Plavix and heparin or, you know, pick your antithrombotic and antiplatelet of choice. We've used that combination before for events that happen in the cardiac arterial bed. Right. But so far, and maybe it's because we didn't have great options, you know, so far what we've done is a, a purely antiplatelet approach for peripheral arterial disease. And so it, it, you know, makes sense that there would be research and, you know, investigation into an anticoagulant that would work in the peripheral arterial system. And so I I think, you know, the times are just sort of catching up with peripheral arterial disease that we've already sort of known and appreciated for cardiac disease. I I wouldn't add anything to that. I would agree 100%. Okay. I'd like to thank our guest speaker today, Dr. Toby Trujillo, for joining us and discussing peripheral arterial disease. Thank you for joining us on this ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation, and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider, and look for future recordings on peripheral arterial disease. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.